Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvik. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvik, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about Haunted Ireland. An episode that I was trying to get out on St. Patrick's Day when, you know, all hell went loose in the entire world. So it didn't really happen. So yeah, for this episode, dye your sheets green, cut eye holes in them, and sit like a wee green ghosty as I butcher Irish names and locations. But first, as always, let's do the shoutouts. Shoutouts to Aaron, Aaron, Ah Monsters, Lauren and David, Alicia, Amber, Andrew, April, Seth, Audra, Austin, Autumn, Bill, Bob, Brandon, Brett, Carolyn, Carolyn, Carrie, Christine, Chuck, Cindy, Cole, Dan, Daniel, Dill, Jin, Donald, actually Dave, I'll say Dave, Donald, Dorian, Erie the Cat, oh I love Erie the Cat, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Ezram, Fran, hey Fran, Harley, Harvey, Heidi, I, Isabel, J-Mark, Jade, and Noah, hi, Jade, Jaime, Jason, Jeff, Jeff, Jennifer, Jared, Jim, Joe, Joanne, John, Joshua, Juliana, Carrie, Kelly, Kelsey, Kimberly, Kira, Lash, Laura, Laura, Laura Rutho, Lauren, Lauren Mangano, hey, Lauren McCune, hey, howdy, hi, Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, I already forgot it again, I'm just gonna say Loki this time, Loki, you get it there, uh, Lorelai, M. Caballero, Martin, Matt, Megan, Mickey, Eric, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Paula, Carrie, Rachel, Reed, Robin, Rosa, Russell, Sarah, Sarah, Sean, Bishop, Shelly, Steven, Sonny, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Tanya, Trey, Veronica, Oh, what's that? I don't know what your name is. What's that? Uh, um, you know what? What's that? It is Will and Sean or Wagner, but I like Sean. Thank you guys all so much. Thank you to the new patrons. Oh, so much. There are so many new episodes on there for you guys, for you new patrons. Listen to all the patron exclusive episodes. There are more coming hint very soon, but I also have two special shout outs. Well, technically three. The first special shout out is to Damien, one of the coolest call-ins I've ever had. He and his white boy ghost friend are reason enough to listen to those batshit insane, unedited, self-quarantine bonus episodes. I love doing these live call-in shows for reasons just like Damien. This kid is cool. He's got a ghost friend. He's not afraid of him. He used to be, but now he's not. He's playing with them and... And the ghost kid, the white boy ghost, moves toys and plays with Damien and seems to just kind of be there to have some fun. So, Damien, a very special shout-out to you, my buddy. I really, really dug that one. And a very special shout-out. Now, I'm going to read it as is because it's beautiful. The sentiment is beautiful as well. Hi, Kurt. I have a friend who is a trucker. And they are working themselves to the bone right now, driving all over our country to make sure that essential shipments get where they need to go so that the rest of us can survive. They normally work two to three week stretches at a time, then have about three days off at home. But because of all the contagion risks for them, with so much traveling and so little ability for anyone to predict how long this pandemic will last, they genuinely have no expectations of being able to be with their family and friends anytime in the foreseeable future. My friend has long been a badass. 
Now they are a champion for all of this. They deserve the recognition befitting the real-life Furiosa legend that they are. My friend's name is Melissa, and they love creepy, weird, paranormal stories. I know that they and their fellow truckers would appreciate an episode from Paranormal Almanac to make the long hours and endless days on the road more bearable. Kurt, thanks for being a voice of solace and strangeness as we all navigate through the fog. P.S. Everyone who is able to do so for Melissa's sake and for the sake of everyone who is putting everything on the line for the fate of humanity, please stay the fuck home and don't shoot at Bigfoot. Yes, I couldn't say this more. Melissa, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Melissa, this episode goes out to you. I hope you like it. God, I hope you like it. If you don't like this one, that's a terrible tribute. But I'll do another episode. If you don't like this episode, tell me. I'll do another episode dedicated to just you. And I also personally would like to shout out all of the truckers and the grocery store workers and the farmers, the nurses and the doctors and the hospital staff and the cleaning crews, everyone keeping us all going through all of this. Thank you all so, so much. See what I mean? So beautifully written. There was no way that I was going to add or change it or do it my own. Nope. That was perfect as is. Melissa, you are awesome. Your friend that wrote this for you is awesome. Alrighty, with that, let's get into paranormal news. The first story in paranormal news is actually a very, very messed up story, um, but I wanted to include it on here to show you the downside of people that get caught up in the paranormal and have mental issues. Her name is Lori Vallow, and she saw her now missing kids, Joshua and Tylee, as zombies. Now that's according to court documents. She's in jail right now, connection to the months-long months long disappearance of two of her children, she thought the two had been possessed and were zombies, according to the newly filed court documents. The claims were made in documents filed last week. Dad, what the fuck? Oh, Jesus, advertisements scare the fuck out of me. Dad, really? You're not going to stop? What? Can you not do that? I don't like this. Go away. Whew. All right. Ah, nothing like a little butt pucker and scary noise in my headphones while I'm trying to read a fucking scary story. Ah, all right, back to the story. The claims were made in documents filed last week in an Arizona court by the by Vallow's niece's ex-husband, who is also said his former wife knows the whereabouts of Vallow's children, Joshua 7 and Tylee 17, who were last seen in September. Brandon Boudreaux made the claims about the Vallow's thinking her children were zombies in a court filing connected to his battle with his ex-wife, Melanie Bordreau, something or other, doesn't matter, over custody of their children. The filing alleges, hold on, Come up. Come on up. There we go. How you doing, pal? The filing includes an alleged conversation uh, with the current husband had with his attorneys after meeting with law enforcement. It says that Melanie told her husband she was concerned about Joshua and Tylee because um, they believe their children possessed and become zombies. Uh, in the court documents, sadly, zombies are described as human bodies that have been that have had their original spirits forced from them and have been possessed by either a demon, 
a disembodied spirit, or a worm or slug. She shares concerns that she's told she's been told Brandon needed to die, and that may indicate that Tylee and JJ needed to die as well. So I'm hoping, I'm sure you all as well. Uh, there's more to the story, but you get the you get the gist of the story. I'm really hoping that they're these kids are found and found alive, and that their mother didn't do something in what seems to me to be a psychotic breakdown, allegedly. Okay, up next in paranormal news, it's not an alien, says NASA, for the millionth time. NASA has debunked theories about a not-so-mysterious smudge on one of its images. The smudge in question is just an artifact of light reflected back to the lens. So, the story says that for the millionth time, NASA has issued a statement assuring UFO buffs that what they're seeing in an image is not, in fact, an alien. This time it was a tiny pinwheel-shaped smudge in an image snapped by the agency's stereo camera that captured the interest of extraterrestrial enthusiasts. And I can see why. I will uh, make sure I post either the photo or the link to the story. Yeah, sure as shit, there is a pinwheel-shaped object in this photo. Now, NASA's Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory, Stereo Mission, is comprised of twin spacecraft that launched in 2006 to study the sun and its weather. Only one of the mission's spacecraft is still operating today. The answer lies on the exact opposite side of the image, they say. At the same time as this strange-looking feature started being visible, the very bright planet Venus enters the H12 field, or field of view, from the left. Notice that Venus and the feature stay in step almost exactly opposite each other across the middle of the detector. Okay, so that actually makes me think they might be onto something here. The fact that as soon as something shows up, something very bright, that it and the object, which are opposite each other on the photo, stay in exact sync. The object um, is actually a reflection of the planet within the telescope's optics and is a common occurrence. You can actually see the same shape crop up on other readings, and they give you two examples, here and here. Uh, the group also released a graphic explaining exactly what you're seeing in the image. They show the Lagoon Nebula, Venus, Earth, and the Occulter. I don't know what the fuck the Occulter is. That sounds creepier than the image. And then the Reflected Light Artifact. I guess I can see what they're saying. There's been many a times when I, I have a telescope as well, a reflector telescope. There have been times when I've taken photos with the reflector telescope, and it's just out of sync just enough that my camera catches the my little reflector eyepiece part that you look into that reflects from the main image. So I can see what they're saying, but it is a weird one, and I can see why UFO buffs were all like, um, what the hell is that giant pinwheel thing in your photo of the, uh, of the sun? Nothing should be there. So yeah, you know, it seems like a very rational, reasonable explanation. Of course, it could be just an awesome cover-up. I don't know. Okay, up next in paranormal news, UFO fans recognize... Don't do that. UFO fans recognize abduction claims on extraterrestrial abduction day, according to Winnipeg ufologists. So apparently, what I've learned in the headline alone, there is an extraterrestrial abduction day. Although the world is in a serious health crisis with the COVID-19 pandemic, March 20th, for some people, commemorates another type of crisis entirely, although it's one more frequently seen in science fiction. It is known as extraterrestrial abduction day. It's an annual focus on those who claim to have had personal experiences or encounters with visitors from outer space. And while it's easy to pass it off as a comic book fantasy, 
a local UFO expert says that these incidents have profound impact on the claimants. And that's, that is true. Whether or not these people have actually been abducted, the impact, the mental and physical impact on these people from these, what they feel are experiences, what they feel are abductions are profound. So I agree completely with that. We do get these reports from time to time that people have said they've been contacted directly by aliens. Some feel that they have been selected by creatures beyond this earth to give us a message or the aliens want to help humankind. And I have to say, if they really wanted to do that, this would be the time to give us a hand. Sure, I'm with you on there. Uh, they go on to say that many of the people who claim to have been abducted are so adamant that it happened that it's something that warrants research. It's an interesting phenomenon. Maybe it's something as simple as misidentification of something else in their lives, but it's a very profound experience, and the number of people having such experiences are very significant. It's the type of thing where it's good to have fun with, but remember at the back of it, there's some seriousness in the sense that these people really do experience these things and it's rife for being studied by science. You know what? I can't argue with any of that. Um, I've talked to, personally, I've talked to many people who have had abduction experiences and it is very impactful on their regular everyday lives, whether they want it to be or not. So yeah, I can totally get behind that. Up next in paranormal news, are ghosts haunting the grounds of Camp Adderbury? Adderbury. Adderbury. Sure, why not? Camp Adderbury, located in Johnson County. Where the fuck is Johnson County? I have no idea. Located just south of Franklin. That doesn't help me. Five miles due west of Edinburgh. Nope. It uh, resides. It uh, doesn't matter. It's somewhere. There's a camp. It's called Camp Adderbury. And they're saying that uh, it's been around forever. And it's, you know, it's been around since... The first, Second World War? Yeah, since the Second World War, these buildings are all that remain from a time when they were used for another purpose. Resonance, uh, remnants of a past de designation. Remnants of a past designation. And from several claims, folks from the past have chosen to remain behind. Paranormal activity seems to be a frequent and ongoing reminder of a time when the world was in a different place. Atterbury has gone through many transformations, and presently, the students are seeing ghosts. That's right, the dormitories for the Job Corps are reported to be a beehive of paranormal activity, including knocks on doors with no one on the other side, electrical malfunctions such as light flickering in one dorm room, one dorm room but not in the others, televisions turning off and on at whim, whispers, voices, and footsteps, shadows moving to and fro, the nagging feeling of being watched, strange occurrence in Bellamy Hall, and glowing yellow eyes and figures in the nearby woods. In October of 2013, there were student claims of an apparition of a woman in the Lyndon B. Johnson dorm and another of a whistling something centered in the Abraham Lincoln dormitory. The students are residents full-time and are witnesses to the continuing cycle of unworldly visitations. They have been for years. I would, I would suspect that the administration is well aware of the issue, but certainly not going to go public to admit it, at least not if they wanted to keep their jobs. So there you go. Oh, that's in Indianapolis. Okay, so in Indianapolis, Camp Atterbury seems to be very haunted. And I'll be honest, I've never heard of Camp Atterbury previous to now. And finally, in paranormal news, sadly, I have to include this one on here because I've seen people come to me with this claim. No, the coronavirus didn't come from outer space. That's right. 
With the coronavirus pandemic continuing to spread across the globe, or around the globe, really, uh, people are panicked and they're looking for answers and explanations. One wild theory has made its way around the web and that the virus came from space. Spoiler alert, the virus did not come from space. Recently, Chandra, oh, what the fuck, Wickramasinghe, sure. Recently, Chandra, known for his work in astronomy and astrobiology, spread the idea that the virus was living on a comet and a piece of that space rock may have fallen to Earth during a brief fireball event over China in October of 2019. He further implied that comets carry viruses that may cause outbreaks in the past as well. No, no, it's not. That's not what happened. In the past, Chandra has uh, asserted that another disease, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, also came from space. He even co-wrote a book with Fred Doyle called, nope, not giving you a plug for that, because it's bullshit. And for decades has tried to prove that diseases like, like SARS or influenza have come from space. With no proof at all. Scientists have rebuked his suggestions completely and that his ideas have largely been considered pseudoscience or quote-unquote bad science. It would be unprecedented to discover that a virus could survive the radiation it would be exposed to on such a long journey through space, never mind the trip back to Earth, and still be able to infect humans after it landed, astrobiologist Graham Lau, who hosts NASA's Ask an Astrobiologist series, told Space.com. However, while it would be an incredibly unique and groundbreaking finding if this were true... There is simply no evidence to support Chandra's claims. It's one of those cases where extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Even though it's an interesting idea, we just don't have any reason to embrace the idea right now. I think it's important for scientists to point out pseudoscientists or bad science. If this was real, it would be great, but we just can't allow ourselves to jump to the feel-good conclusion without doing our due diligence as scientists. And then it goes on to explain where it actually came from, how we know it actually came from, where it came from, and that, um, look, I'm going to put it all in a nutshell. This pandemic is terrible. The coronavirus is horrendous. People are dying. Real people are really dying from this thing. We don't need to add that it also came from space just to spice it up. It doesn't need spicing up. It's terrible as is, as you all know. All righty, that about does it for paranormal news. Uh, before I go to the break, not surprisingly, the Haunted Souls Bazaar that I was going to do coming up very soon has been postponed to a future date. So those of you that wrote to me saying how much you were looking forward to hanging out with me there, well, I was looking forward to it too. We'll all sadly have to wait. I'm hoping that the next one that I'm going to be doing won't be postponed. I can't talk about that just yet, but that's coming up very soon. I think May is when um, they're going to figure out what they're going to do with the next one. Alrighty, let's take a quick break and be back for more Paranormal Almanac. It's time now for a short break. Feel free to get a refill on your favorite beverage. And remember, if you have a paranormal story to tell, Paranormal Almanac wants to hear from you.
Seriously, how great was that music from the one and only, the incredible Buzz Lee? Buzz Lee, thank you again for that incredible music. That's right, I'm back. It's still March. Grab your shamrock shake, settle in, and let's get all St. Paddy's on this edition, even though St. Paddy's is past. Yes, I know I'm late. It's still March, though. It still counts. Also, I really miss shamrock shakes. Damn you, quarantine! All right, like I said earlier, I am definitely going to get a lot of names wrong on this edition. You've been warned, but let's do this anyway. The first one is called The Haunted Cottage of Kunin, near the Fermagnach-Tyrone border. And I'm going to pause right here to figure out how the fuck to say Fermagnach. That's right, Stitch. You get mad at me because I pronounced it wrong. Yep. Here we go. How to say it. Hey, hey, hey. Fermana. Fermana. Well, yeah, I was way off. So the first one is called The Haunted Cottage of Conin, near the Fermana-Tyrone border. It's a tiny, abandoned cottage that was built in 1911 and was the home to the Murphy family. Mrs. Murphy and her six children lived in it, and wouldn't you know, when her daughter was hitting puberty, they started having poltergeist activity in the cottage. Gee, it's almost like that keeps repeating over and over again. Anytime a young girl, most of the time, um, hits puberty, poltergeist activity starts. Not every time, but you know what I'm saying in these stories. Now, sure enough, they had the usual. They had footsteps and whispers, but they also had plates moving across tables on their own, beds becoming unmade on their own. I mean, hey, poltergeist got to sleep too, I guess. Uh, Pots and pans thrown against the wall. And that apparently was scaring the crap out of everyone. And it also had the always popular furniture levitating around the rooms. They heard mysterious music, which would suddenly start playing from quote-unquote nowhere. The children witnessed shapes and shadows appearing uh, appearing to like kind of go by them and then disappearing through the walls. So they would come out through a wall go right by everybody, and go into another wall. Very, like, Haunted Mansion kind of style stuff. Um, This place had everything. Now, grain of salt time, I can't find any mention of was everyone together when the beds were unmade or the pots and pans were thrown against the wall? Or was it always, like, one family member in the room and everybody, you know, came running in and that family member would say, oh, wow, you just missed it. Those pots just threw themselves against the wall. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm not saying that's not what happened. So again, grain of salt time, but there is one witness I do believe to all of this. His name was Father Coyle. Now, he came around the cottage when word spread through the village. He said that he did personally witness clothes rising and falling on an empty bed as if someone was underneath them breathing. So after seeing this and hearing the other stories, he says, you know what, screw this, let's exercise the house. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but basically that. We're going to exercise the house. And does not just one exorcism, but two on the house. And like so many other stories like this, shit just got worse. It didn't quiet down. It sped up. More and more paranormal stuff started happening that the village started thinking that the Murphys brought the demons there on purpose. And maybe they, you know, like they wanted it there. So... Being incredibly smart people, the Murphys got the fuck out of there and went to America in 1913. So that's it, right? Everything's good? Nope. 
the poltergeist, demon, whatever you want to call it, followed the Murphys to America and kept on scaring them, first on the boat over there and then in their new home. But this is supposed to be about Ireland, so let's get back to the cottage itself. From what I can find, no one lived in the cottage ever again, and it became a ruin. Then in 2010, Marion Goodfellow, a medium, visited the house for the BBC series Northern Ireland's Greatest Haunts. Marion commented that it was probably the scariest and most awful place she had ever visited. She said she could feel the presence of a man around 5'8 as she walked closer to the house. She said that the man was very angry and did not want her there, or anyone else for that matter. The man she made contact with was wearing a dark coat and holding a flat stone, and again, he got angrier and angrier with her as she uh, said uh, as she got close to the house or was in the cottage. She said his name was John and that he was pure evil. And with that story, we are off. So let's keep going to John's Bridge, which I swore I did a story about, but I couldn't find it. So let's do this maybe for the second time, I guess. Uh, John's Bridge is in Kilkenny. And during a great flood in 1763, a bunch of people gathered on John's Bridge to watch a nearby bridge upstream called Green's Bridge wash away. Why they thought that this bridge was any safer is beyond me. So they're standing there. So they're standing there watching Green's Bridge go, and yep, you guessed it, John's Bridge washed away, killing all 16 people on it. Now, a bridge was rebuilt on the spot, and ever since then, people claim to see ghosts in the water, scratching at the riverbanks, and ghosts leaning against the wall of the new bridge, looking off towards where Green's Bridge would have been. Now, I'm really curious if this is like a residual haunting, like a tape recording, if you will, of the tragic event, or if it's interactive. It seems to me, though, that this is a residual haunting, that people are seeing the tragic event that happened on John's Bridge in 1763. Regardless if it's a residual haunting or not, it's still a very interesting thing, because like I said, I thought I did a story about a bridge like this, but that bridge apparently was the one, the only, the closest one I could find. I did a story about one in Russia. Basically, the same kind of event happened there as well, and people see the same things kind of happening. So this kind of tragic event, for whatever reason, you know, becomes a residual haunting or becomes a haunting. But let's stick with Kilkenny for a second and head up to the castle known appropriately as Kilkenny Castle. Now, the castle was built in 1195, and seemingly it's always had ghost stories, like a ghost woman who roams the corridors and wanders lost and lonely through the castle gardens, she is known as the White Lady, but many people think that this is the spirit of Lady Margaret Butler. And I'm sure you guys heard the episode where I, the full episode I did about the Lady in White ghosts. There's two more of them on this specific episode alone. So anyhow, they, many people think this is the spirit of Lady Margaret Butler, who was born in the castle in the mid-15th century and was the paternal grandmother of Anne Boleyn, the second wife of King Henry VIII. If you guys don't know that story... It doesn't end well. Uh, two teens in 2010 took a photo of this lady in white. But I've got to be honest, I think I found the photo. It's the only one that it seems to connect to these kids in 2010 and this castle, Kilkenny Castle. To me, it just looks like sunlight coming through a window. But I'll post it on Facebook. Check it out. See what you think. I guess I could kind of see why if you were a teenager visiting this castle, hearing all these ghost stories... 
then you take a photo and then you see this, why you'd immediately go, oh my god, I got a photo of the white lady. But again, to me, just looks like sunlight coming through a window. Alright, there's also a bit of a different ghost encounter that happens at the castle too. An electronic counter in the parade tower that's used for counting how many visitors go to the castle continues to count up to 100 visitors a night during the off hours. Now this is while the tower is locked and out of public access. So there's nobody going through there, and there's nothing big enough that should be tripping this counter. Yet, for some reason, like I said, some nights they get up to 100 visitors clicked off on that electric counter, that electronic counter. So it seems to me that the ghosts are uh, inflating their numbers to be more popular. One other thing of note about this castle is that it's also the site of the infamous Dame Alice Keitler witch trial. The what? Well, Dame Alice Keitler, I think it's Keitler, was the first recorded person condemned for witchcraft in Ireland. She fled the country, but her servant Petronilla de Meath was flogged and burned to death at the stake on November 3rd, 1324. So this castle has a lot of connections to possible witchcraft, or at the very least, um, you know, false, false claims of witchcraft and burning people to, you know, burning people to death at the stake at this castle. So I'm going to guess that all of that shit added on to the fact that uh, it's a castle and it's been there since the 1100s or whatever. Yeah, there's going to be ghosts. There's just going to be ghosts. Now that leads us to the next one. Now I assume it's just there to fool foreigners like me into saying these words and can't be real. But sure, let's do this. It's called the Haunted Mansion on the Culera, on the Culera Principle in Sligo. See? None of that can be real. I don't think that the Culera Peninsula in Sligo is a real place, but sure, let's go with it. The Haunted Mansion was built by William Phibbs and known as Seafield or Lachine House throughout time. It's a huge estate with over 20 rooms and was a beautiful, peaceful mansion that is until one of the sons named Owen brought a bunch of Egyptian mummies back from Egypt and into the house. Which, spoiler alert, isn't a good idea. Now whatever tagged along with the mummies, you know what it is, started shaking the house and shattering ornaments. It just says shattering ornaments. I'm assuming it means Christmas ornaments because one site says that the ornaments exploded off of the tree. Servants of the house even saw a dark figure roaming the halls, roaming the halls, causing Jesuit priests to come and exercise the place, which, again, didn't work, and just pissed off the spirits more. And that the dark spirit was seen daily from that point on. From the exorcism on, it went, oh, you didn't like it when I just randomly came through? Cool, now you get me daily. How you like that? So servants started to see a phantom horse-drawn coach that would tear down the road and disappear into the entrance door. This seemed to be enough that the servants all left. They were like, yep, yeah, you know what? Fuck this, I'm out of here. And no one else would work in the house. In fact, it got so bad that the Fibs family themselves left the house in 1938 and had everything in the house sold, including the roof itself. Now, the house is mostly still there for anyone that wants to visit a rundown nothing of a place that is incredibly haunted still. And again, all because Owen, some rich little bastard, decided to bring a bunch of Egyptian mummies home from Egypt. Come on, man. 
The next one is a ghost dog story, so hell yeah, I'm gonna tell it. It's the ghost of a black Newfoundland dog that has been seen sitting at the base of a life-sized marble statue of Captain John Boyd in the cathedral. In 1861, Captain Boyd, accompanied everywhere by his dog at his heels, organized the attempted rescue of more than 135 ships and their crews. Now, these ships were wrecked between Houth and Wicklow uh, during a storm. Now, the tale says that Boyd lashed himself to the crew, to his crew, and then went to sea in an attempt to save lives. Sadly, he was drowned with his men. Apparently, it was his dog, and the dog is so loyal to the end, and even more so. The sad story is that the dog chose to starve to death at the grave rather than leave his master, hence, you know, the ghost dog. All I can say is you gotta love a good boy, even if he's a ghost good boy. And uh, by the way, I want to pet that ghost dog, too. Now, there hasn't been anything evil, really. It's just that they keep seeing the ghost of a black Newfoundland dog right at the marble statue of Captain John Boyd in the cathedral. Up next is an insane asylum, so you know there's gonna be ghosts. It's called the Cork District Lunatic Asylum. And people to this day hear inmates from the past walking, talking, groaning, screaming, and showing themselves in this abandoned insane asylum. It was built in 1798 by Williams, by William Saunders Halloran. Now, he was the author of the first book on Irish psychiatry, and he also invented the Halloran's chair. The what? Well, it was rotation therapy. It was an idea that was thought up by Darwin's grandfather. Yeah, that Darwin. Now, Halloran said, whoa, rotation therapy, that sounds cool. I'm going to, quote, make it better. He wrote, since the commencement of its use, I have never been at a loss for establishing supreme authority over the most turbulent and unruly. Yeah, anybody who was formerly turbulent and unruly would settle the fuck down because what it did is Halloran, quote, improved it by making it fit four people at, at a time. So four people would get set up in this chair, if you will. There's four chairs. It was basically a gimbal device. You know those things that you see like that... that um, Astronauts get in and they just start whipping them around and around and around. Think of a medieval version of that where four people would get in it. And by get in it, I mean strapped to it. And then he would get it fast enough, going fast enough to make a hundred rotations a minute. So yeah, the turbulent and unruly would settle the fuck down, but it didn't make anyone sane again. It made a hell of a lot of people seasick, but that's about it. So a bunch of spinning, dizzy, insane ghosts are seen here, I guess, because that's what happens when you start whipping people around at 100 rotations a minute, trying to make them sane. I don't even understand the uh, the logic behind that. Why would, you know, scrambling your brain make you any less insane? It just doesn't make any sense. Okay, here's another castle. It's the Belvalee Castle, and it's a quick one. In the 17th century... Margaret Hodnett lived in the castle, and the only thing she loved more than herself was her reflection. That's right, apparently she was really beautiful and really, really into herself. So some lord wanted her, and she was like, nah, nah, I'm good. And like you do, he said, you know what, fuck that, let's storm the castle. So him and his army started battling her and her army, and shockingly, her small army held them off for a full year. Now, when they finally got in, you know, to take his new bride, 
He saw that she was starved and not so hot anymore, so he said, you know what, fuck it. And he smashed her favorite mirror out of delusional anger. Yeah, that's right. This giant mirror that was on the wall of this castle, he was like, I'll show you, and he smashed it. So one of her army men killed him, apparently, for doing this. All right, so Lord's out of the way. She's basically gone insane because of the brutal year fighting off his army, and she eventually dies of old age and saddened. Now, her ghost is seen in the castle to this day, and guess where? Yep, right by that old mirror. A ton of people have seen a ghost of a woman in white with a veil seen walking or floating up to that spot and rubbing the now non-existent mirror as if looking at her reflection. You know, like, walks up, looks at her reflection, kind of cleans the mirror, if you will, and then disappears. Now, that's one seriously vain ghost. Depending on where you get your info, the spot of the old mirror that the ghost rubs has been rubbed smooth to the touch now. But grain of salt on that one. I couldn't find anything that shows that one spot is nice and shiny. And if it is nice and shiny, it's because of a ghost and not because a ton of tourists have walked up and tried to rub the spot that they were just told about. So, yeah, grain of salt on that one. All right, here's another quick one, but this one's about an abbey. The Abbey of the Black Hag, Co Limerick. I don't know what they mean by co. A lot of these things say co blah, blah, blah. I assume it means like city or something. I don't know. All right, so this alley is in the valley southeast of Shanna Golden. It's the remains of the abbey that, according to legend, had a prioress who practiced black arts and sex magic. Now, she eventually died, and I can only assume it was because of some freaky sex magic thingy, but so she's dying. She dies, and she's interred in the Black Hag's cell. Her ghost is said to haunt the Abbey to this day, moaning and wailing, probably about the name of her cell. The Black Hag's Cell? Really? That's the best name you can come up with it? Um, you guys know her name. All right, there's also another ghost, though, and it's a ghost of a woman, the Countess of Desmond, who people now think was buried alive by mistake. Why? Well, the story goes that her ghost was seen so often on a spot that when people investigated that spot, they found a makeshift grave that was clawed up from the inside, and they found finger bones stuck to pieces of wood still. They say she is the reason that so many people hear screaming coming from the valley where the abbey was. Okay, up next is the whole bloody battleground. It's called the Ogrum Battlefield, and it's filled with ghosts of the Jack Jacobite Army. Jacobite? Yeah. The Jacobite Army. Thousands died here, and it was um, it was even written about in Thomas More's poem, Forget Not the Field, which I'm not going to read for you right now. So if you want to hear a poem about a bloody battle, please Google Thomas More's poem, Forget Not the Field. All right, the place where this happened, there were thousands of men killed. And it said, where these thousands of men's blood kind of pooled, is known as the Blood Hollow. People see the ghost of that army on a regular basis all around the Blood Hollow. Up next is about a house. Yep, just a house, but it does have the ghost of a servant girl. It's called the Coolbon House, and it's in Co-Wexfield. And it's in Co-Wexford. See, I think they just mean county. I don't really know. Um, it's a 19th century home where the uh, story is 
that a servant girl was standing too close to a window in the upper room east of the porch tower watching the rain when lightning struck and killed her. There are a bunch of BS reports saying that her body was burnt into the pane of the glass for years, but you won't find any evidence of it because the whole house burnt down sometime later by the IRA. I love how confidently these sites say, this is fact, her body was burnt into the pane of glass. There's no pictures of it anywhere. There's no stories of it anywhere. There's this bullshit legend that it seems to be passed from site to site that has no credibility at all. But her ghost is still seen standing in the now burnt out window of the house to this day. Okay, here's my problem with the Cool Bond house. I think this is the true one, but there are many sites that say it's not the Cool Bond house at all, but another house called the Bruins Folly, and that's where you can see her. So... I guess go to both, tell me where you saw her, and that's the correct one, and the other one's bullshit. But it seems to be like 70-30, cool bond, to, cool bond house to 30% Bruins folly. So that's why I said I think it's the cool bond house. And finally, an Irish vampire tale that might have started it all. It's a second vampire story in, I think, this month. His name was Abartok. Like I said, he just might be the inspiration for all vampires. That's right, the inspiration of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but I'll get to that in a minute. He was in what is now Northern Ireland in the 6th century, and he practiced black magic. So, Abertach comes from Lacht Abertach, meaning sepulchral Monument of the Dwarf. Yep, that's right, he was a dwarf a little person. He was said to be vicious and evil, doing blood sacrifices and rituals, using blood of uh using animals blood to do black magic. Well, Abertok was up on a wall doing a ritual, fell and died. The next night his spirit or him, it's really hard to determine, but I think it was actually him. They keep saying his spirit, but the next night his spirit was seen demanding a blood sacrifice. Some stories say, basically, he rose to drink the blood of the villagers. He was in the middle of this blood sacrifice, fell and died, but had gotten far enough into the blood sacrifice to demand blood of the villagers. Basically, he rose from the dead and started drinking the blood of the villagers. So a chieftain was called in to kill Abertok, which he did, but guess what? The next night? Yep, you guessed it. Little old Abertok came back. So the chieftain killed him again. Yep, next night it happened again. But this time, the chieftain had gone to a holy man, perhaps a pagan or a druid at the time, who told the chieftain that he needed a sword made of a yew wood to kill Abertok. Then, to bury him head downwards, standing up but head downwards, to keep him contained in the coffin and to surround the grave with thorns and put large stones over it. So basically what he's saying is, you gotta stab Abertach, the vampire, in the heart with a wooden stake, bury him upside down, standing up upside down, put a big-ass stone on it, and this stone's called a lect. Now if the stone was ever moved, Abertach would rise again. From what I can read, most of the stones were taken by farmers for like walls or various things, but never 
the large stone, never the lect. And locals tend to avoid it to this day. It's now known as the giant's grave, which I think is just the Irish making fun of uh, Abertok's height. And I found a pic of it. It's actually a very pretty tree and large boulder in the middle of a field. So it does seem to have the thorns over it still in the tree and that very large rock, the lect, over on, to on top of the grave. And like I was saying, uh, some of that, uh, some people say, including Wikipedia, there's a lot of people that say that Bram Stoker's word Dracula comes from the Irish Drachfola, pronounced Drachola, meaning bad blood. And that is derived from Abertok, the story of Abertok. I kinda, kinda, kinda want people to go and move that big rock and see if he's still down there. But then if he is, it seems like bad shit would happen. So I guess I kind of don't want that. It's one of those things, you know, where you, like, I really want to know, like, I wonder if they can do ground-penetrating radar to see if something's still under there, underneath that big rock. And that's what they should do. Leave the rock alone. Use technology. Do some ground-penetrating ground ground radar. See if they can still see Abertok standing upside down with his head down. And if he's still there. If he is... That's some pretty fucked up shit, and make sure you keep that little person down there still. Alrighty, so that about does it for the first round. There's so many more. There really is. Like, I could have kept going. I could have kept going, but, um, you know, this is a lot to take in right off. This is a lot of stories to take in in one thing. I don't like to do 90 stories in one episode, because they get lost. They get lost to me. They get lost to you guys. So I figured for this one... I'll just stick with these stories. I'll hit some of the highlights. Make sure I do the Abertok, because that was a cool one. But uh, Ireland, man, you guys got a lot of haunted sites and people and things and weird shit happening over there. That could do a whole cryptozoology episode about Ireland as well. Yeah, you guys got some funky-ass shit going on in Ireland. Very cool stuff, though. I really liked it. I'm really mad at myself that I didn't get it out on St. Patrick's Day like I wanted. But then again, it's still March. The Ides of March are still happening. Let's do this episode now. So I got in just under the wire. Hope you guys like this one. Have any of you guys, have any of my, my listeners, have you been to any of these sites? Can you confirm any of this stuff? It's really hard for me to kind of go through all this stuff because some of it's, you know, so much of it is from the 1100s and the 1300s and the 1500s. So I'm only going by um, legends and stories and, you know, pass down story after story after story kind of a thing. So it's it's really hard to debunk a lot of this stuff. But a lot of it is really intriguing. So if you guys been to any of these locations, please let me know. Have you guys been to um, the Giant's Grave? Because that would be cool. I don't know anybody that I could find that I know that has ever, ever been to the giant's grave. I would love someone to go there. I think that'd be very cool. Put a paranormal almanac sticker on the rock, on the big stone or by the tree or, you know, something. Just let them know that uh, people are still telling the tale of Abertok. All righty. Once again, I am your host, Kurt Sandvik, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac.
How amazing was that theme song? That is by Katie Adelson, A-D-E-L-S-O-N. It's called Halloween Reel, Spooky Fiddle, an Ed Perlman tune. And I absolutely loved it. I had to use it for this episode. It's so fantastic. Thank you again, Katie Adelson, or Adelson. Yes, our match, yes. Oh, yeah. 